welcome to Fuzzy Logic for Your Science on a Sunday. You're listening to 2XX, Canberra Community Radio. I'm Tom Strait. Today, I've got Chundeng Fem here in the studio. He's a political ecologist from the Australian National University. Thanks for coming on the show today, Chundeng Thank you for having me. Um, so, you're a political ecologist, right? And I think it's maybe better if you explain what that is than me, because I'm... Yeah, I can do that. Um, <laughs> political ecology is a field which brings together uh, many multiple fields. Um, the, we start off um, in many many political ecologists have their origins in many different fields. Um, a lot of them start off as anthropologists. A lot of them start off as geographers. Uh, I started off as an ecologist. Um, and what we do is that. At some point in our careers, all of us realize that our field alone is not enough to explain um, environmental problems. And right. we've started to en- incorporate each other's work into a, a, a very fluid, a very flexible, multidisciplinary field. Right. So you started off being an a, a ecologi- ecologist, a yes. type of scientist studying ecosystems. Yes. And now you're starting to work more broadly in in with political science and um yeah, and economics and yeah. anthropology and sociology anthropology sociology okay yeah. um so can you tell us a little bit about how you got started on your career yes um i got started uh, i was first trained as a primatologist um a primatologist is someone who works with primates um and like monkeys, like monkeys and yeah chimpanzees, and chimpanzees apes, yeah, yes yeah and I specialized in a type of uh, primate called slow lorises. Slow what? Slow lorises. Slow lorises. Yes. Okay, what's, what's that? I've never slow lorises are very unique primates, probably yep. the most unique primate, because uh, first of all, they're nocturnal, and secondly, they don't run, they cannot run, uh-huh. and thirdly, they are venomous. Venomous? They are venomous. They're the only <laughs> venomous uh, A venomous monkey. Yeah. Um, well, when it comes to they have fangs like a snake or um, the front teeth are very narrow and very sharp and they come together and they form a sort of capillary reaction when they bite uh-huh. um, they have uh, a precursor of the poison or the venom in yeah. their elbow so they lick okay. and, it is, and their saliva activates the venom and when they bite it the, the capillary action from the front teeth pushes venom into well, the how does it, they're producing the poison in their elbow yeah. how does it get to their teeth um, when they get in a stress position, you can see them on online. Um, they do this sort of hands behind the back, the head, thing, okay. and so they can lick. They are one of. Oh, they lick their elbows yes. when they're stressed. Yeah, and then they, when they bite. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yes. So they can lick the elbow. So that, is that a defense mechanism, or also for hunting? Uh, it's a defense mechanism. Um, okay. They eat insects, and and but the venom has uh, it's not used in. So you don't need venom against an insect, right? No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're attacked by I don't know, like a big cat or something. Yeah, they'll do that. Yeah, yeah. and they'll bite and hang so on. So wh- where are they from? Uh, you can find them from uh, India. Okay. Through to Vietnam and southern China and southwards through Indonesia. Okay, wow. And you don't want to mess with them because they might bite you and poison you. Yeah, you think that, but they're actually the most traffic pet primate in the world. Okay. Yeah. Wow, well, that sounds dangerous. It sounds like keeping a poisonous snake. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit like that. Yeah. yeah. It, is, it is like that. So they can they kill you? 
Um, they've known to cause the venom has known to cause a, a reaction in humans quite yep. similar to severe anaphylactic shock. Okay. Yeah. So it could kill you. It could kill. Yes. Right. Huh. So, but when you say they're trafficked, it's illegal. I'm assuming in yes. most countries to yes. to um, own them and sell yes. them. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Huh. So it's it's the most common illegal traffic primate. Is that what you're saying? All primates cannot be so, traded. Okay, um, under international yeah. treaties. Okay. So they're, um, but the lobsters have so, a higher level. Why are they so popular? Are they quite cute? Or? Because they look very cute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's. I'm gonna have to. Reason. I'm gonna have to Google images. I can do that. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's called a uh, slow loris. Slow loris. Okay, I can, I'll do that now. Okay, and um, so what? So you were researching them? Yes. And um, and I was researching them, and um, they are one of the hardest primates to actually find for ecologists. If you do, if you find, try and find them legally. Um, and but I moved on to look at trade and various things, and then I started to do uh, my master's research under Dr. Professor Anakaris, yeah, who is the slow loris expert in the world. Right. Um, and closer to the end of my master's degree. I kind of realized that a lot of uh, conservationists and, and biologists. You, you did your masters in Singapore, which no, is in the UK. In the UK, yeah, my, but you're from originally from Singapore. from Singapore. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I found that a lot of uh, conservationists, uh, ecologists, they throw numbers at people and they throw graphs. Oh, this is getting a nature this, they're getting a nature. With right. the assumption that when people see the graphs, they will reduce um, the pressure on on the species. Yeah. But I think. Um, as far as I was concerned, it was completely not working at all. Yeah, so the scientists producing this data and maybe just publishing it in scientific journals. Yeah. And so they're saying, oh, there's a real problem this with species decline and the and threat of extinction, but nobody, the general public doesn't know about it and there's no action taken. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I thought we needed to better engage. I, I, I've come, you know, I, I did, um, I studied science at university and did honours, and I came to the same conclusion myself in the end. Mm -hmm. Like, I, if if the public was really engaged with science and really took the findings of it seriously, um, then I probably would be a scientist now. But I, I, I thought there's no point. If if you do all of this science and then nobody pays attention to the results, mm. then really the the need is in communication, yeah. and and that's why I'm doing this radio show actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, we're thinking along very similar lines. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So so you're thinking we need better science communication. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and the packaging of this communication, um, I don't think scientists know how to do them very well. Right. Um, because we, by us scientists by nature, are people who will accept these graphs and accept. Yeah, because scientists maybe are that sort of people, and they also have a training about um, how to read data and yeah. yeah. But the general public perhaps isn't super interested to dive into scientific journals or yes. look at lots of numbers and graphs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's how I started to look into human factors around. Um, ecology, um, yeah, and that's how I ended up in as a political ecologist. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um. So, so what was your next step after you're doing your masters and you're studying the Loris? What, what, what did you go to then? Um, I went. 
back from Singapore uh, to to Singapore from the UK, and yeah. I worked um, in a government commissioned climate yep. change project where okay. I projected um, the impacts of uh, climate change um, on terrestrial animals in, in Singapore and the surrounding areas. Right. Um, but that that sort of strengthened my resolve a little bit to add human factors. I had to get into political ecology. Correct. Um, yeah. Because they, the project was commissioned, uh, was designed in such a way that um, ecology was completely compartmentalized uh-huh. in its own um, little cell. Uh, right. And it was never interacting with all the other... The aspects of human society, yes. I guess. Yes. Yeah. And of course, we're one of the main elements of ecosystems these days on the planet because we're we're controlling them and and deciding if they survive or disappear and yes yeah i i I thought for instance you know when we're talking about science communication and what people react to i think um things like the the cave disaster in thailand where those that soccer team was stuck in the cave all right and how much attention that got from people were were you aware of that happening everyone knew about it right right, right around the world one of my neighbors was up at night like checking on updates about it um and yeah but the thing is they're just you know it's a terrible situation but it's drama and it's on the news so people get really engaged with it but they're they're just 12 people Mm. you know and of course if you were personally in that situation that would be terrible but there's actually millions of people that are in really dire situations and and things like climate change and the other environmental issues that that are coming on us on the planet are going to cause huge issues for millions and billions of people but people don't engage with those numbers that much they they get they can but they can engage with a drama a story that's played out on the news in front of them like those 12 kids in a cave is just despite it not being important for the number of people it's infecting people can really emotionally engage with it yeah what do you think about that in terms of storytelling and science communication i mean what lessons that's uh actually this example is comparing um then and what's happening now is a good place to start to talk about communication and okay um look into the way people react the biases that people have yeah so if we if we look at the um the thai, the thai story yeah um from an anthropological point of view yeah um, it is. It shows that humans connect very well to stories, and yep. the, um, the the earliest and the, probably the best remembered co- form of communication uh, are things like oral histories, uh, where stories get passed down um, from generation to generation. Yeah, so you could say we probably evolved to to react well to stories. That's yes. that's just what we've been doing for hundreds of thousands or millions of years yes. as a species correct yeah and the, the the fact that it brought up so much attention um that people focus on it um if you look at the world in general this is a really small part of the world um and very in effect a very small what's what a very small part of the world this thai story it uh, affected a very small part of the world and right well yeah like 12 people or whatever and their people. families yeah yeah. Uh, compared to climate change or compared to um, the or, the coronavirus, for example. Yeah, or the or yeah, like there was a, I mean, like a landslide in Sierra Leone that I don't know how many that killed huge numbers of people, yeah. and nobody's even heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we come to areas where 
you question why do people focus on certain things yep. a lot more than the others. Um, there are things like uh, availability bias, which mainly because that it is such a human interest story, it's always on the front line, uh, front page of the news. Yeah. Um, not saying that uh, what happened is bad, you know. It, uh-huh. it is a tragedy. Um, yeah. But uh, when we when we compare these stories off off against each other, um, like for example, if we talk about climate change, then um, we don't handle probabilities long-term probabilities very well and and we call this probability neglect yeah um and that's why there's this very big difference um in community reactions to very small stories and to very big stories so uh, we can see also in the fires that happened recently people Uh don't react very well to the entire debate around how fire started when fire started and the whole ecology behind the fires but they react Australians react very strongly and very admirably to the human stories. Right. So the, I, I guess the overarching picture of the, the climate drying and heating up, which is the basal cause for having these really extreme fires that we haven't seen before, uh, people like that, that issue is just continuing and getting worse, and that's what we really fundamentally need to deal with. Yeah. But And people aren't, we aren't dealing with it very no. well. But when it's really immediate, like the fire actually happening, people pull together and they go out there and fight it in the fire trucks and they support the firemen. Yeah. It was like coronavirus as well. When when people are dying right here, right now, I think, then, yes. then there's it's drama where you see it and and people really take it really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's it. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what what can we do to make, um, I guess, the, these really big problems that maybe longer term, like like climate change and um, extinction and depletion of natural resources or wh- whatever big problems that science is bringing to us? Um, do you have some ideas about how we can make them more dramatic and more real and live and, and, and tell stories about them that that um, are engaging for the general public? I think that it is, it's really difficult to get people to, f- to think of a problem in a very long-term prospect. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, at the risk of further complicating matters by bringing in another field. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's get complicated. Uh, it, there's an emerging field um, that started in, um, in Silicon Valley before it became Silicon Valley called Future Thinking. Future Thinking, yeah. Um, future Thinking uh, works on the premise of projecting uh, events or visioning events uh, that happens 10 years or 20 years, pretty much in intervals of 10. Um, but the most common working ground is 10 years from now because um, it is not so near that you can't do anything about it, but uh-huh. at the same time, not so far that you completely yeah. fall into the trap of probability neglect and just right. forget about it. Well, you, I mean, you got, can't really tell what's going to happen in 50 years or something. Yeah. There's so many variables that... Yes. Yeah. So past, past 10, 20, especially from 20 onwards, the, the connection between people and the, the issue falls off. Yeah, um, which is why I think when people or the the news media brings up charts of um, climate change projections in twenty fifty or twenty hundred, very few people actually connect with that. Yeah, um, but if makes me think of the the um, Chinese Communist Party five year plan. It's not ten years, but like I guess it's, they tend to have like this really solid plan every five years. Yeah, 
and yeah, perhaps that it makes sense along the same sort of lines. Yes. So, yeah. um, and not just the Communist Party. I think um, in, uh, for example, Singapore, yeah. they they call them laps. So okay. Every lap is like twenty or twenty-five years. Right. Yeah. Okay. So beyond that, there's really you have deviated from this original plan so much that there's no point really in setting out this plan. Right. Yeah. So this this field of future thinking came out of the Silicon Valley area. Yeah. And um, so how's that developing? That you're. Uh, are you a future thinker? Is I've re- I've recently got into this, uh, yeah. and, I, and I've been training in this. I've recently completed training in this. Right. Um, and there, are, they, we set out scenarios. Um, we think about the future. Let's say, think about the future of fire. Right. Um, and we place ourselves in this uh, position. Are we able to affect anything, or are we able to get people to around us to work things out? Um, so, based on different ways that we project ourselves in this problem, uh-huh. we come up with different solutions. For example, if we find that it is not a problem that a single person has the power to solve, we try and either game the process or we stimulate the process. What do you, what do you mean by game? To game a, uh, to game a process um, is to get many people to work together yep. without them actually, often, uh, often without them knowing that they are working together. Okay. Um, there is a, a simulation or a game that happened quite a few years ago, I think quite recently, um, that um, came up with a scenario within a ma- massive online game where the creators uh, got players involved and invested in the game and then created a resource shortage. Okay, so so it's it's a fictional situation yeah like like playing a board game or something yes. with with goals and right and and okay so that they've got some sort of a goals and work towards and they've got resources and a shortage of resources yes. yeah okay. so uh, when they created the shortage of resources they have the, the testing hypothesis were was that people will either get banned together yeah and try and overcome this problem or they would run and make um, they would cause a resource run, so they make the resource even scarcer by right. So like the toilet paper crisis, kind of yeah. yes, okay. yes, very similar to that. <laughs> um, and what actually happened was people made a run for resources. Okay. Um, I think when push comes to shove, for some reason that we still cannot yet explain, people decide to um, head in that direction. Right. Yeah. When cooperation might be another solution is yes. Okay. Right. So. It's it, it becomes an all or nothing problem. Um, yeah. So what what conclusions can we draw from? I um, th- I'm from quite um, wary of really drawing conclusions from these sort of things. But um, what's comparing that and and at the risk of being very unstatistical with just only one example? Yeah. We can draw the parallel between that and um, the toilet paper run. Um, by saying that we could probably simulate or game examples of uh, what we think of scenarios in real life. Uh, for example, we could uh, simulate a, a, a fire event, a very serious fire event, or we could simulate the drying up of rivers mm. um, in a game environment. Okay. And see how people respond to that. Yes. Okay. So it's, it, so it's, it's a way of just thinking in a really detailed way about how this might play out. Correct. Say, Okay, this is what we think might happen, and now we're going to give you all different roles and present you with a scenario, and then you've got to 
work through it see what you would do yes yeah and okay yeah that seems like a really good way of trying to think it out with using several putting several heads together and actually going through the motions yes. of working through that problem yep. as individual actors mm-hmm. in that situation yep. yeah which is much more powerful than, than one person just trying to work it all out yep. yeah so the premise is that researchers we cannot think of every single possibility yeah and we cannot simulate the entire scenario in our head where one yeah. event leads to another event leads to another event yeah and what all the different actors are going to do in that situation Correct. yeah so if you give that break that down and give it the job of thinking about that to individuals and you bring in much more um intellectual power i guess to right. yeah because yeah. they only have to think about themselves which is much closer to what would happen in the the real situation yeah yeah so i think the, um in, in in futures we are sort of we are beginning to see signals where we get collaborative efforts from everyone yeah from and everyone gets involved in a simulation yeah or a problem solving issue without actually being in it yeah uh, the most recent example is uh, nvidia trying to borrow everyone's um video processing power to uh to fold proteins okay to tackle the coronavirus problem to create vaccines okay um and this <laughs> is where you know there is we don't us a, a centralized processing power is not enough and they draw every from everyone who is connected to the internet with their uh, video video graphics processor yeah um right um so in terms of using this this procedure to game something out so for instance we might have used it for predicting the the toilet paper run for so maybe five years ago the government should have said okay we've got to work out what will happen in terms of a pandemic and sit a whole bunch of people around a table and say okay you're a single mum and you're a shop owner you're, you're the manager of Woolworths or whatever okay you're told there's a pandemic and then one guy says oh I'll go out and buy heaps of toilet paper and then the other players then maybe would say oh if i see you buying toilet paper i'm going to buy toilet paper and then we'd be able to predict that there'll be a toilet paper run yes and then the government would have build warehouses full of toilet paper in preparation yes for that event maybe yes that, you just yeah. you just you just brought up a um a, a, a futurist technique as well uh-huh. the single mom yeah. um we get we often get um during the break during futures brainstorming sessions to get people to do something called hard and em- hard empathy okay. where you actually really inverse immerse yourself in a person's role in a situation yep. and you become that person yeah uh to a point where you will actually react like how you would react if you were really in the situation you're supposed to really try and imagine what that would yeah. be like yeah yes. and this this helps to bring out draw out reaction from others as well yeah yeah um Okay. Uh how about we take a break now? Um I've got a song Hafia from African Virtuosos and we'll be back right after this. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Canberra Community Radio.
Hello and welcome back to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Canberra Community Radio. I'm here with Shun Deng from the Australian National University. He's a political ecologist. Um, so, Shun, you worked in Borneo yes. on a on a project um, with tribal communities there that have been displaced by um, a dam building project. Yep. Um, and so we were just talking about um, how you're moving into future thinking and looking forward, but this is um, gives you like a great background for that. The fact that you've like analysed how things have played out mm-hmm. through a political ecology lens mm-hmm. in the past with decisions and the interaction of um, politics and ecosystems and society, right? Like in this dam yep. project. Yes. So, so what happened there um, with this dam building? Um, so what happened to us, um, it is a very long history. Um, the dam is called the Bakun um, Hydroelectric Dam. Um, it's in the m- interior of um, Borneo. In, in the Malaysian part, right? Yes, in the Malaysian part, yeah. the, the state of Sarawak. Um, so what's happened to us, um, in the 60s, um, to counter um, communist influence, from uh-huh. the north, um, the Western nations banded together to create um, something called the Colombo Plan, um, which assisted um, development in developing Southeast Southeast Asian nations um, through pro- the provision of education or educational materials. They flew out, uh, um, promising young students to be educated in Australia or the UK. And um, the other thing they did was to to identify and help with large infrastructure projects, with um, especially energy. So the Colombo Plan was an Australian government initiative. It was a, a an alliance of many Western countries. Oh, okay. And um, but Australia had, had a, probably the biggest role to play because it was the closest to Southeast Asia. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we were, yeah, we're bringing a lot of students here. Yeah. Yes. So if you find that if you look at the, the political elites in Southeast Asia, especially yep. Malaysia, Singapore today. Yeah. A lot of them are actually trained here in Australia. Okay, wow. Yeah. So do, uh, do you think that um, means they look more favourably on Australia because of that? They often do. Yeah? They often do, yeah. So coming back to this dam, um, so uh, Snowy Hydro at the time um, identified 50 over dam sites, and this was one of them, and uh-huh. it's the biggest one. Right. Um, and so it took... Because it's so big and so expensive, it took such a long time. Um, every time they uh, wanted to build, the economic cyclical problem comes in and economy goes down, there's a recession, then they shelf it again, and then it's back on, then it shelf it again. Um, so it didn't take until the 90s or the 2000s to get this project going. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was the immediate... The sort of, the long history of the dam. Right. Uh, and because the dam was built um, along a river that uh, people lived with, there are 15 villages that lived along the river. Yep. Um, and as after the dam was built, water would rise behind the reservoir. So these people have had to move. Right. So we talk so about displacement. And, and, and this, this dam is the biggest hydroelectric project in Asia or Southeast, Southeast Asia? Asia? Southeast Asia. So it's huge. Okay. And it's flooded a huge area of jungle that had never been logged or cleared. Is that right? Um, not prior to that. Yeah. Um, but to to have 
to clean up the water, uh-huh. um, they had have had, had to lock. Otherwise, there will be a lot of rotting wood. Right. Below, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, when you, when we when we talk about the place being large, it's huge. It's seven hundred square kilometers. Yeah. It is the size of kilometers. Singapore. You could fit Singapore in the one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That sounds huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could fit an entire city in the water, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, so Australia started developing this project, and and they were going to deplace, displace fifteen villages, um, and so I think this story plays out in many places, probably yeah. all around the world, especially right. in developing nations. Okay. Um, so once they have, uh, once you have a hydropower dam, um, you need a buyer for electricity. Right. And um, the earliest buyer that promised to to use up this electricity was an aluminum smelter built by uh, Rio Tinto Alcan. So, so the, the thinking when they're building the dam is we'll make create the electricity and then we'll find a market for it yes. or, or a market will come along. Yes. So do the, the, the Did they start building the dam before they worked out a buyer? I think it went together. Hand oh, hand. okay. So um, they're like, we'll start building it when we find a buyer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the idea is to create uh, so much electricity excess that they can either sell it uh-huh. Or they can, you know, sell it as an export to another state, or right. sell it to a buyer that at a much reduced price. So the first buyer was an alum- for aluminium. Yes. Um, from Rio Tinto, was it? it was going to uh, Rio Tinto Alcan. So it's a okay. joint project between Rio Tinto and oh, okay. a, another Canadian and and and, firm. and is it smelting? Or yes. Yes. Yeah, so smelting aluminium is a hugely energy intensive project yes. process, isn't it? Yes. It is. Yeah. So where there's cheap electricity, they they'll just go and build their their facilities wherever in the world is the cheapest electricity because that's their real cost. Is yes. Ele- yeah. Yeah. So it's actually because Sarawak does not mine aluminium. Yeah. So it's actually cheaper to mine somewhere else, send it to like to Sarawak. Yeah, smelt it there and then yeah. export it. The transport cost is not the major cost; it's the electricity, right? Yes. So and and Tasmania, I think, has got an aluminium smelter for that reason. Like they did all that hydroelectric development in Tasmania, mm-hmm. and then they've got these intensive industries like an aluminium smelter that use a large proportion of that electricity. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's a similar model, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, things fell through uh, with the aluminium smelter. Yeah. Um, and a Chinese Malaysian consortium eventually did buy up a, a, a portion of the electricity. Right. Um, and some of it is being sold to Indonesia uh, and Brunei. Okay. Yeah, so they, they did manage to spread out the, so the, the consumption. So they sell it just on Borneo or do they, they run cables across to Java or what? At the initial stages, they were really ambitious and tried to run talk about running cables but just they just found it found it too expensive okay because i've heard talk about solar farms in the northern like north of australia running cables to singapore which to me it really surprised me that i thought that that was feasible Mm -hmm. um but this this is a case where they thought about doing this in the past and then decided it wasn't worth it or not feasible Yeah. yeah yeah okay so it's used all on the island of borneo then yes yeah okay yes and has big industry developed um, they have developed uh, a uh, the aluminum smelter is up. Yeah. For example, um, there are some small manufacturing industries, uh, sawmills, uh, palm oil processing plants that are in an industrial area which uh, the power from the hydro plant supplies. Right. Yeah. Okay. But your your real interest is in the in what happened to those 
people from that the tribal communities from that land mm-hmm. and and their story and the story of the biodiversity yes. of that that area right yes okay and and how that interacts with the the, of the politics yes. of what whether Australia is developing or China and the, the economics and and like that whole the interaction between those different factors right yes yeah um we I, like I said, I started off as an ecologist, so I actually wanted to go there, um, to that site to do a biogeography or ecology project. Um, okay. Because it is a great simulation of what happened to the, in- the Indonesian and the Malaysian archipelago thousands of years ago. Right. So, so I'm, I'm guessing that what you mean is um, back when sea levels were low during the, the ice ages, that the, a lot of those islands would, were connected, right, mm-hmm. through Indonesia. That's it. And so plants and animals would spread freely. And then as the, um, the water levels rose, then the islands became isolated. Yes. And so then you get these little communities of isolated plants and animals yep. that then go on their own evolutionary paths, right? Like, yes. like And this is what really got... Um, I think this is the story of what Darwin really got him thinking about evolution in the Galapagos archipelago, right? Because you have these... Yep all of these islands that are cut off from each other and then you see these similarly related species mm-hmm. that have taken their own evolutionary journeys on each island and you say oh look this looks like that on that island but it's just a little bit different um because it's been cut off or you get i mean you can see that with humanity as well that um you know every part of the world we're a little bit different we look a little bit different because over time we've we've been on a little bit of a different trajectory like, trajectory yeah <laughs> um so, so what happened to that? So you wanted to look at these. Um, you're telling me that this was an opportunity to look at it from the from the start. Yes. So where when people look at Indonesia or Darwin or you know look at the Galapagos Islands, you're looking at something that's been in process for thousands of years. Yes. Or, um, but then you're going to see that these islands were getting cut off when the dam was built and starting that process of um, differential selection and yeah. Yes. Okay. That's it. So what happened to that project? Um, and then, um, just before I left um, Singapore to come to the ANU to start this project, uh, I was told that um, maybe I should look at the human factors around the project. Um, and that was when I really started going into uh, political ecology. At that point in time, I did not even know what political ecology was. Okay. Um, until I, until this um, professor Lai Lin Hing at um, the National University of Singapore told me about um, people being moved out and we should look at the human factors that affect large uh, dams like this. Right. Um, and doing some research, then I discovered that uh, one of the earlier pioneers of uh, political ecologists actually was at the ANU and is still, at, I think, maybe recently retired, uh, Harold Brookfield. Okay. Um, he worked at Himalayas to, and he's he's a geographer. Um, and he linked, he managed to link what I had questioned the whole time between um, environment, environmental symptoms that he called it, um, to economic symptoms, uh, to the entire chain of. Uh, it was almost like a domino effect from something that's happened in another place in another part of the world, um, causing the narrowing of choices as you filter down the scales from international scale to the national scale to the s- district and then the village level and then to the to that one farmer right uh and i found it really fascinating um so i decided to p- use that as a framework uh at the end of 
the project, the framework, uh, the the chain, as he called it, has t- turned into a sort of a network. Um, because I found so many factors that bounced off against uh, each other, and each one of the actors have their own interests and uh, their own positions that need, they needed to negotiate from. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so looking at all the different actors and what, what their motivations are behind what they're doing. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So if we, if we want to look at the biodiversity of the place, um, yeah. ecology itself is not that hard to do. So what we did was to get a bunch of camera traps, we tied them to trees, uh-huh. and spread them out throughout so the catchment, uh, or the, the immediate banks of... So understanding the, bio, like the biodiversity of what small mammals and stuff in there. Yes. Right. Uh, small mammals and ground birds. Yep. Uh, and we looked at, uh, and we found that um, two main things happened. One yeah. was that nocturnal and animals started to become diurnal, and vice versa. Nocturnal animals started to become diurnal, so they can become active in the day. In the day as well. Yeah. Why would that happen? I think it is a pressure. Different sort of hunting pressures cause them to um, behave differently. So I would have thought if you if the if hunting pressure is is damage like threatening a population then they'd be more likely to stay at night because it's safer right or not not necessarily so okay. um hunters knew know the habits of animals so okay. if they are going for a certain animal they'll go uh-huh. at that time okay yeah um and the other thing that we did find out was that uh, extinction has uh, ex- extinction starts from close to the dam right and as the further away we move from the dam, the closer to the original diversity we get. Right. So, so you were telling me when we were talking earlier that all the all the people from these little villages got concentrated into like a one area mm-hmm. near the dam, mm. and then and then the hunting pressure was really increased around that village that was created. Yeah. Yeah. And then everywhere else, the the hunting pressure, I guess, was reduced. I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so then you got a massive decline in biodiversity and abundances of animals yep. around that village. And okay, which which seems like uh, isn't surprising. No. Yeah. Because it takes fuel. It takes time to travel out. Yeah. Hunt and come back. So at at some point you um you've run into the diminishing returns right. problem. Um, and there's no way that you could hunt for long enough and keep uh, food fresh to come back right um, so because of this I started to look at hunters okay so we have um, biodiversity we have a big biodiversity crisis in there um, which we want to understand so then the there's a biodiversity crisis yeah. well, it sounds like it might be quite good for biodiversity in that there's all this area that's untouched by hunters I think Borneo at some point has been hunted as a, at, by uh, someone because there are so many tribes that are dispersed and they move around. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but you're saying away from this village, like back maybe where they were living before. Yeah. That's... So back, back where they were living before, it is a village with a limited spread. Uh-huh. So when we talk about the, re- the, the way that they were spread, we are talking about from the first village to the last village will take you two days by boat to right. get there. Okay. And so the, this area is really wide. Yeah. So the hunting pressure to be able to feed, feed one village, the pressure is very diffuse. Right. 
uh, and you have um, one point of hunting, and then a long distance where very, there's very little activity going on, then another point, and so on. Okay. Yeah. So what's happened now is that because everyone's moved out and they want to come back to the river, old river to hunt, mm. you'll see everyone starts hunting from the easiest point, which is near, nearest to where they get off the boat. Yeah. And that's why we get the gradient mm. uh, that we see. Uh, and I call it an extinction crisis because uh, wildlife don't have the time or not given the opportunity to recover. They're shot pretty much as soon as they tra they trespass doors or they move into the the empty uh, block where someone something else has recently been hunted out. So if we left things alone and if we've completely stopped hunting, wildlife would recolonize. Yeah. But that, that doesn't happen in that place. So you get areas of empty forests so where you just get trees and not much else. Right. Um, so you, uh, you started the project with these guys to try and help with this was biodiversity problem or or to help them that so you you got involved in starting some tribal tourism yes. in in this community mm -hmm. um so that's bringing in um uh, uh, tourists i guess that are interested in living a bit of a tribal life and and going out um fishing and uh, what sort of a yeah. Activities they do fishing, hunting, fishing, uh, and adventure tourism. Adventure um, tourism, okay. And bird watchers, bird watching, okay. Yeah. And living a like a traditional sort of life, like yes. in their traditional longhouses. Yes. They live in longhouses. They live in longhouses. And and do the the tourists live in the longhouses as well? They do. Okay. And and what's the goal of this project? The goal is to well the when people got moved out. They started to get exposed to a bl uh, the larger market economy. Okay. Um, so before they lived in their little villages and they yeah. they basically survived off the forest. Yes. So, so they lived they, they lived next to a river where yeah. small tributaries of rivers where it's easy to catch fish. Yeah. Uh, meat came from hunting. Yeah. Um, they got uh, the vegetables just off the little plots at the back of the, right. the long So, house. So did they have any connection with the rest of the world really? They did have some um, when they have they are, they fall ill. They need to be evacuated. Okay. Or so they would go to doctors. Yes. And uh, and okay. Um, it's but it's, the nearest town is still quite some. Right. And how would they would they pay for that, or would that be government? Um, medical bills tend to be government sponsored. Okay. Uh, so they, so they wouldn't need to be selling things in order to be able to afford that. No, they wouldn't. Do they they wear? Do they have like products that brought in from outside? Like clothing or yes. metal axes. Yes, yeah. They do. So in the in in their history, they used to trade with Chinese traders. Oh, okay. And um, some of the, the Chinese cult artifacts have um, become their part of uh, marriage heirlooms and dowries. Oh, okay. So they so, pass these on for generations. Yes. Wow. Yes. So if you go into the elites or the the, the headman room, of yeah. the rooms of their apartments, you see stacks of Chinese gongs. Then. Wow, um, they could be really old. They could be really old, and wow. but they they don't play them. It's just displayed and stacked there. Okay, yeah, and it's a bit of a status symbol, maybe. Yes. Yeah, you were telling me in the longhouses that the the elites, like um, like the chiefs or whatever you would call them, um, would live in the center of the longhouse, and everyone, the whole community, would live in one big longhouse, yeah. right? And the 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 elites would live in the center, and the the lower classes. There used to be a slave class that's now mm. been 
um, eliminated, mm. yeah, it's illegal, would live in the furthest reaches, the outside edges yep. of the longhouse. And the closer you were to the middle, like the higher up the hierarchy you were yes. and, and, and are now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, that's amazing. I never heard about that before. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't either until I got there. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. Yeah, I guess you could compare it to um, elites living in the centre of Sydney cities. You know, yeah. like if you live in the centre of Sydney or Melbourne or yeah. Canberra, um, then your house is going to be more expensive than yes. if you live right out in the fringes. So there's a similar gradient, I suppose. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to this, uh, well, I started to look at hunters um, because they used to be really important in the society. Yeah. Um, because everyone depended on them for food. But once they moved out, this whole disconnect happened. They were no longer near where they were. And they were expected to farm, which they couldn't do very well. Um, so they tried and go back uh, to recreate their old livelihoods. Right, because they, they didn't have any tradition of farming, so they didn't really know how to, to do that. Okay, so they're going back to the, like hunting and living out of the forest. Yes. Right, and then, but they're finding that there isn't enough space, so they're depleting the resources that they need. Yeah, and you're telling me like their their longhouses burn down occasionally, and the problem is once one part of it starts to burn down, yeah. the whole thing will burn down, and yeah. it could be a kilometer long. Yeah, and so the whole community has lost the longhouse in the past. They used to used to just rebuild, um, but now because they're living in one spot, the resources for building the new longhouses maybe just aren't available. Yeah, because they've been depleted. Yeah, so they just build out of brick or concrete. Right. Yeah. Okay, but that's a problem because they might not have the money for that. Or oh, they will just build very shabbily. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so they're having a problem, like maintaining themselves in this new environment. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yes. And so you thought this is a way for them to support themselves. Correct. Yeah. Um. So for hunters, what I found that they have skills. They have special set of skills. Yeah. They are, they are very comfortable in the forest. They know their way around. They know how to keep themselves safe. Yeah. And they know how to find what they want to find. Um, in terms of they can they can find pigs they can find the the, the large charismatic mammals they can find the hornbills uh -huh. um, so why not we retrain them but take the gun away okay um, and but so they have great skills as a, a a guide for tourists that want to see wildlife exactly yeah and they get paid well for that yeah um, in the past um, they don't need money now they do yeah um, because the they they now have to buy food uh, they have to buy fuel uh, where they didn't need money to the ex to this extent in the past so the the idea is to exchange um their skills for some subsistence to be able to buy stuff they need and to be able to feed the family without having them to go out to hunt because we know that the hunting does not work for them in the long run and uh, as we see more and more extinctions, it just means that they are basically running out of places to hunt. Mm. Um, mm. So they have to find a new livelihood. Yes. Right. So you're trying to help them out with that so you can perhaps prevent extinctions, local extinctions, and yes. and, and have give them a way forward. Yes. And, and is part of it also some sort of education for the the tourists that come there? Yes. Yeah. There, there are some, some um, tourists who are just really curious and interested. Yeah. They want to learn. There are some tourists who are Bird watchers who are after, you know, they're twitchers, they're just after taking off the checklist. Yeah. Um, and the guys can get them in quickly, tell them where, where what is, and then get them out. For me, it would be fascinating just to see how these people themselves live and to be a part, you know, a small, a part of that community in mm -hmm. a way for, for a few days. Yeah. I would find that amazing. 
it, it is really interesting because um, they do they are quite, really quite open yeah um, they accept you as uh, if you if you stay there for if you intend to stay for there for a long time they pretty much accept you as part of the family so uh, I mean do you think this can play a role in in community like science communication as we were talking about earlier this this sort of um, yes yeah yes uh, yeah. Um, what we are doing for the the longhouses in terms of communication is that we bring we don't throw facts at them yeah i don't i don't give them a chart the the extinction chart saying that look you're causing this you have to stop but what i'm saying is you have skills you need your skills uh-huh. let's let's try something else with your skills uh, and you can f- feed your family um, and you can maintain your culture because if they don't uh, if they're not able to feed the family what they, what's going to happen is that they're going to move out of the place to find work as laborers in the cities and not come back and the community just disappears like that so to if we are able to keep them keep them uh, keep the families together uh, we are able to feed the families uh, to bring people in rather than them moving out uh-huh. uh, we keep the biodiversity one we keep the culture that's the second one that's really really important right okay yeah. um, and you've been involved in a, another another project or um, of of um, the, the ecologists or bio uh, scientists Southeast, Southeast Asia biodiversity, biodiversity society, society. Yes. yeah so how's that going what, what, what? that's um, this started when I finished my uh, undergraduate degree, mm. uh, a few of us really passionate um, young scientists, not scientists, or young science graduates, got together and we we had the idea of doing breaking out of the paradigm of university-led research to push um, independent science research that is not tied to in university direction or okay. funding. Uh, so how have you been doing that? Have so you've been trying to promote it and encourage that yes. that sort of activity? Yes. How do you do that? Um, we one of the things that happen that happens in science is that if you're an independent researcher that's unaffiliated, you can uh-huh. almost never get a research grant. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you go to the government, for instance, for money mm-hmm. or even to a, a private business, they're not gonna you're gonna have no status. Yeah. Yeah. So we bring uh, young people in and we yeah. rotate them through the positions. One is to allow them to get experience in running an NGO. Okay. Um, two is to give them a grounding, a base, a platform for, for which they can start biodiversity research. Okay, so this is, so it gives them more status, for instance, if you're applying for a grant, then you say, well, we're a member of this foundation. Yes. Um, which, okay. And does that, does that help them get grants? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've got quite far in some of the big areas, we've got members who've got National Geographic grants, mm. and we've got a member who's who's proceeded quite fine in one of the Rolex grants, mm. only just fell short. And what I'm re- really happy to see is that a lot of, a few of them have sort of graduated from our group to head bigger um, groups. So that we have people in BirdLife International now. Uh, one of them is the president of the Jane Goodall Society, Jane Goodall Institute in Singapore. Okay. Uh, which is, this is what I wanted to see and this is what I wanted to push uh, at the start because what we had, uh, what we have in Southeast Asia is that you follow the line of your supervisor or your professor and you almost never get out of it. Right. Um, 
but this, this is giving people really the opportunity to go and cut their own path and yes. and do the things that they think yes. are interesting or important. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, and because this is the um, there's this concept where in I'm not sure if it's a, a Southeast Asian problem is that when you do ecology or you do biology zoology in or botany. Mm. Uh, in university, you're going to and uh, you're going to be necessarily be a zookeeper or necessarily be uh, a horticulturist or anything like that. But I wanted to just encourage young people to work out um, and explore um, their scientific interests and provide them the platform to do it. Okay, that well, that's a that's amazing that you. The, the number that you've done that and and, the, and the, you're starting this tribal tourism project and um, the re the research you've done on the dam and um, what you're thinking about future thinking uh, I think it's all really fantastic stuff and, um, and I'm really inspired actually yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I wish wish you luck with um, moving into the field of future thinking I hope that you can bring some good insights to um, to our society about how we'd better prepare for the future and make sensible decisions. Thank you. Um, so uh, we've got to go now. Thanks so much, um, Shun Deng Fam, for, yes. for coming on the show. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, Shun Deng's a, um, a researcher with Australian National University in political ecology. Um, this has been Fuzzy Logic uh, on 2XX Canberra Community Radio. Um, thanks so much for listening to the show and catch you next week. Okay, see ya.